You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Joy to the world, our podcast come. It's Monday time again. Let every nerd prepare his cue for one from the Worship Review. Oh, nice. Or one from the Worship Review. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Worship Review. My name's Tyler. And I'm Colin. And on this podcast, we critically examine the texts of worship music and praise music and Christian music. And we're going through some Christmas music right now, Advent music, because it is Advent Tide. Tide is an old word for time. And uh, today we're going to take a look at, you guessed it, Joy to the World by Isaac Watts, an 18th century, I think we can call it a masterpiece that has been probably published more than any other song in the English language. It has, indeed. Any other Christmas song. In yes. the English language. Yes. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Colin, why don't you tell us who or what Joy to the World is about? Joy to the World is a song proclaiming joy to the world because Christ the King has come. It implores people, it implores the heavens, it implores a variety of inanimate objects and planes and realms to sing. So just various things in nature. Uh, The song proclaims that the blessings that the king brings are so overwhelming that they redeem the whole earth from the curse of sin and from sorrow, and that Christ is ruling and reigning in righteous glory. So all good news. Yeah. All good news with many good side effects. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And there's a real sense in the song of the present that this this is the case. So Christ is ruling, Christ is reigning, Christ is righteous. Start praising him because this is happening now, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's happening. Yeah, it's happening. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Why don't we take this then verse by verse, shall we? Yeah, sure. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. If you're not a speaker of archaic English, you'll think it's strange that this is is come and not has come. Rest assured, dear listeners, this was normal once and still is in German to make past tenses with the verb to be. But in English, it's fallen out of fashion. So we would now say the Lord has come, but they mean the same thing. It's just Mm -hmm. a a little grammatical tool. Yep. Let earth receive her king. So we're welcoming Jesus to earth. In a way, we're being commanded to receive the king. Now, hold on just a second, actually. We need to slow down. Because let earth receive her her king, and you said the word we. It's interesting that the earth is given a gender. So it seems to me that we're not merely talking about about the peoples of the earth. We're actually talking about 
the whole of the earth. And that's why we use the word. Fields and floods and Yes, rocks. everything. Nature, the skies, and the inhabitants of the earth and the inanimate objects on the earth. So this sets out right away that the praise of the king is to be proclaimed by everything. I think that's the idea here is that, and that Jesus is king over everything. It should be clear already that there is something more going on here, much more than some, than a song about like the incarnation. So, uh, because if this is merely speaking of the incarnation, we would immediately say, well, wait a second, the earth, the peoples of the earth did not receive her king, right? If, if this is referring to Christ coming at the incarnation, Christ came and he was crucified by the very people who were mm-hmm. supposed to be praising him. In other words, this song would already be a tragedy yeah. and not a triumphant proclamation. And it, it never relents from a triumphant tone. What about this line, let every heart prepare him room? Okay, so I read this as an imperative. So it's not saying that maybe hearts will prepare him room, maybe they won't. I think let here means let the peoples proclaim, you know, God mm-hmm. is here. It That doesn't mean like you're free to proclaim it if you want to. It means like do it. Yes, you're commanded to. Yeah, so we shouldn't read this as... If, you're, if your heart is so inclined, like this is not a wishy-washy thing that you get at a church service sometimes. It's like, you know, if you feel moved, maybe you should do this thing. It's like, no, do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Prepare him room. Mm-hmm. Let there be light. God wasn't saying, if the light wants to come, it could come. No, he's speaking a word and he's saying it's going to happen. It's just the construction of it. So I think here we've got, let every heart prepare him room. In that sense, it's kind of redundant. Because, you know, if if Christ is king, which he is, then of course, and he's king of all the earth and all creation, and he's returning triumphantly. He doesn't know, need us to prepare him room. He doesn't need saying? us to prepare him room. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, like he, he owns us. Yes, he, it is his heart. He, I mean, he owns, he owns the, earth. the heart. Yeah. I, I don't think I was as generous to it as you are. I read it as, I think I read it as more of a suggestion, actually. Yeah, I don't think it is. every heart prepare him room. Yeah, I don't think it is. The best analogy to it is let there be light. The reason why I was critical of it when I read it because is because I was meditating on texts that remind us that while we were still enemies with God, he sent Christ to save us. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, did I, you know, at my conversion, did I prepare room right. for Christ? No, he, he, you know, gently, lovingly shook me awake from the right. sinful stupor that I was in. Um from death, if we look at Ephesians chapter exactly. 2. Yeah. From death to life and gave me a new heart. So uh, this makes me think, like you were saying earlier, that this is referring to something in addition to the incarnation. Yeah, if we, just to just to tie up a, tie a bow on what you've just said about the construction, um, if we read this only in our own context— both in terms of what we would normally mean by saying let something happen and also what we would mean by the idea of preparing room in our heart as a kind of in the evangelical context this would not be very this would be troublesome 
because there is this idea that in order for Christ to dwell within us, we have to first like do something. We have to first like Prepare him clean, clean things up in some way, right? Or fix ourselves up in some way, right? Which is t- completely not true. Um, but what's really happening here, you know, in the early 18th century when this is written is a construction. And, and these words are virtually unchanged from what Isaac Watts wrote. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing. So this line recalls your description earlier of not just men and women and children singing praise to the Lord, but all that is seen praising the Lord Mm -hmm. and unseen. Yep, exactly. Let the visible realm and the invisible realm, but maybe also heaven could refer to the skies as well. Like it could just be speaking about all all the earth, right? Because if we look at Psalm 98... Why don't we talk a little bit about Psalm 98? Because this song is meant to expound upon the second half of that psalm, right, Colin? Yeah. So this is all new to me because of doing this podcast. This is not something I knew ahead of this. But as I was reading the words, and I was like, where is that? And then I'm looking at the psalm, and it's like, oh, okay, I'm seeing some more similarities here. Okay, this actually was deliberate. Like Isaac Watts was aiming for a kind of creative interpretation of Psalm 98, because at the time, most churches in England are singing out of the psalm book. They are not singing hymns. To put a little bit more of a uh, fine point on this, this comes from a collection called Stylized Psalms of David, number 98. Okay. It's a stylized (laughs) psalm. Yeah. Okay. And perhaps, because I think this is relevant for many people, because I don't think we've thought critically about joy to the world, perhaps it would be worthwhile to read from Psalm 98. Read the source text for this. Shout, so I'm going to start at verse 4, which is where I think this this, uh, joy to the world song is recalling. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth, burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Yeah. So, and there you got other examples of let, that construction with let, right? Where it's clearly not an option. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Those mountains will be, yeah, yeah. <laughs> will be really singing. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So, so I, uh, let's put a, I want to come back to the judgment issue yes. because I think this is important in the song and, and it's actually easy to miss yes. also. So, uh, so what we've established already is that this really is not about the incarnation in any way. It's, it's a stylized version of Psalm 98. So, and maybe at the end of this episode, let's get to why on earth then we are singing it at Advent and Christmas time. The one thing I love about this already is we have another attribute 
of Christ. So he's so in the first verse he is proclaimed as king, king of creation, and now he is the savior, but the savior who reigns. So he is king but also savior. And yet again, we have the command to men to employ songs and then the various features of the land, the water, rocks, uh, plains, all throughout the earth is going to resound praises for God. So I think we're really now into that Psalm 98 territory, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, etc. It's it's recalling that. But I also think it is in some ways recalling the triumphal entry of Christ as well. There's this great... Into Jerusalem? Yes. So when Christ comes into the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19, the people are praising him, they're throwing their cloaks on the road, he's riding the donkey... And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then the Pharisees get really upset about this, and they demand that Jesus rebuke his disciples because they are making such a display of Christ coming into the city. And Jesus says to them in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Hmm. So... We have in that moment the idea that if the peoples do not praise, creation will praise because Christ is king. That's that's a week before he goes yeah, to the cross. He's ready to go to the Passover and right. then die. Exactly. Right. But all of creation is aware of the moment that's before them and, and the God that's before them. And this is this is very interesting, and I think we should be persnickety here because we're persnickety about everything. <laughs> yes. Inanimate objects don't have yeah. vocal cords. They Ooh. don't have vocal apparatuses. They don't have yeah. lungs. They don't have hands to clap. Yes. So what this psalm is getting at, what this song is getting at, and what Christ's entry and rebuke of the Pharisees is getting at is that the whole creation knows its Lord, its creator and master, yeah. and will praise uh, for all to see. I mean, it goes back to something we've talked about before. The heavens declare the glory of God. In a, in a visible, it's visible to us that these declare the glory of God, but what it sounds like we're seeing in the psalm, and even in the triumphal entry, is also that these things are also praising God in kind of their own way. Independent of us. Exactly. We look at the heavens and we see the glory of God, and it's a way that we could never praise God, right? The, right. The stars gloriously arrayed in the heavens. Right. It makes you wonder if when we are in glory and when the earth is redeemed, if there will be some way that we can see or experience and understand the the unseen, the praise that we now do not see or do not quite fully understand. Like rocks. Yes. Yeah. Like, how, like if the stones are crying out, if the trees and the plains, if everything is praising God, again, there are some ways we can see that now in the way that these things are ordered and and their various cycles. And, you know, like there are ways we can see nature praise God, but there's clearly more to it than that that we are unaware of right now. And I wonder if we'll be able to comprehend it in some way, and that will be just yet another layer of glory Mm -hmm. that God receives. I think another thing that this line is getting at that may be lost on modern 
uh, modern singers, modern readers, is that flood here is not referring to water coming into your no destroying your foundation. No but a body of water, particularly yeah. a moving body of water, like a river. Yeah. And I think this line is supposed to point us to the various kinds of climate and region mm-hmm. of the earth that yeah. will be singing forth praise. It's not exhaustive, but we have fields, we have waters, we have stony landscapes like mountains, mm-hmm. hills, we have plains, all mm-hmm. of which proclaim forth the glory of Christ at this yeah. coming. Yeah, it's a full. It, I think the idea is meant to suggest the totality of the earth. Colin, why don't we take a look then at verse three? No more let sins and sorrows grow. Okay, so if what I'm saying is correct about the way that we construct let then what we're not seeing here is an invitation to stop sinning. What we're actually seeing here is a proclamation that sin and sorrow are done. And I think we can make that claim because of what follows in the next line, nor thorns infest the ground. This is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 3. The curse. The curse. Right, where where Adam is cursed, and God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So this is a part of the curse that still exists right now. Like we still struggle, like the crops still fail, like weeds still grow in my lawn and in my pastor's lawn to his great chagrin. And you notice that it says, no more let sins and sorrows grow. An agricultural exactly, verb. Exactly, right? Thorns and thistles. So, so, so he's kind of doing, again, they don't have motion pictures in the early 18th century. So instead, he's asking you to look at sin and sorrow as thistles and thorns that infest the ground. So it's a reference to Genesis, but it's also just a picture that says, these things are gone, and that also means that sin is gone. So it's it's not saying, "Hey, you, stop sinning, stop being sad." It's saying, "No, this this has this has vanished. Mm-hmm. This has gone away completely." This is Revelation twenty one verse four, right, where every tear is wiped away, death is no more, right? Sin is gone, crying, pain, etc. Like that's what's happening. We have these visceral agricultural images here of thorns in the ground growing, making it tough to work. And my wife pointed out something to me that I had been taking for granted up until recently, and that is that songs that are this old are written before much of the populace could read yes. or write. Mm-hmm. So these images, you said they didn't have motion pictures. Um, they had maybe verses that they could memorize yeah. and songs that would be sung in tavern houses mm-hmm. maybe on on – the weekends and after the workday. Word pictures. Exactly. Or or physical images in the church on yeah. the stained glass windows. Mm-hmm. But they were not they were not going home and reading Revelation twenty one no. or Genesis three, right? No. We're talking about a time period where large swaths of the population can be expected to be illiterate. This is half a century before the United States is even a thing. So some classes of people would have learned Latin and they w- would have studied 
their letters, as mm-hmm. it's called, and learned how to read and write in English. But there's no reason to believe that many of the commoners would have been able no, to do that No, very few of them. No, widespread illiteracy. So these images are meant to recall their daily labors and yeah. make it make the idea of Christ's second coming visceral to them. I wonder how much this also calls to mind Romans chapter 8. Hmm. Uh, so if we zoom in on verses 20 through 22, we read... Paul saying, the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So we're seeing not only, as we see in Psalm 98, that creation can praise but creation can also groan because creation seems to know, maybe that's not the right word because it doesn't have agency, but creation anticipates its own redemption in a way. And uh, so we have a kind of echo of that in this song, that when Christ returns, his redemption is going to is going to bring about the redemption and renewal of all of creation. His blessings will flow as far as the curse is found. And where's the curse found, Colin? Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he doesn't reference Isaiah 11, but it's similar to Isaiah 11, where you've got the the lion and the lamb lying down and all that. So, uh, and I think what's interesting here too, is this is not the, see, if you, it would be if we sing this song at Christmas, and I wonder if one of the reasons we sing this song at Christmas is not actually because of the Protestant tradition, but is because of the Catholic tradition, in which Christ's death and resurrection also brings about at that moment a kind of renewal of the earth. I think Catholics do have a sense that there is a future redemption of the earth, but I think they have a stronger sense than Protestants do that. Christ's death and resurrection actually does does quite a bit more. And it's worked out in real time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so hence you get certain ideas about uh, sort of social activism, environmental activism, and that sort of thing. We associate this song with Christmas because we've sung it at Christmas every year. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically but, the only reason. <laughs> yeah, the, there's a strong tradition of doing that. I would like to know where that originated. I mean, the only other thing I can think of is the notion of Advent. Advent is a time in which we look forward, we rehearse the looking forward that took place in the past. It's very, temp- it's the temporality of it's very confusing for us. But we we rehearse- It's like a Tarantino movie. We, yeah, it is. We rehearse in the present the pasts looking forward to the incarnation. Can you say that again? We rehearse in the present the pasts looking forward to the incarnation of Christ. So we remind ourselves that there was a time of darkness and a time of waiting before Christ came. But then there's this other thread that goes through Advent, and that is in the same way that there was a waiting for Christ to come the first time, there is also a waiting for Christ to come the second time. And so in the present, we also wait for Christ to come in the future. But of course, we have a sure hope that he will come in the future because he came in the past. So 
that would make this song an appropriate song to sing at Advent and even at Christmas because Christ will come and this is the way he's coming the second time. In the same way, it would be appropriate the first time to be saying whatever the unto us a child is born, to be thinking about and dwelling on those sorts of prophetic verses about Christ's coming. It's also right for us to dwell upon the prophetic verses now for Christ's second coming. And I've been in churches that will sing Advent music with the kind of groaning and longing yes. toward Christ's second coming. Like most people do it subconsciously, but O Come Emmanuel, mm-hmm. this this kind of longing tune, yeah. they're they're often recalling in, in my experience, the churches that have done this have recalled some wrongs that they'd like to see righted with the world. Yeah. That's in my view an incomplete view of Advent. Because the fact is, Christ did come. Prior to Christ coming the first time, they should have hoped for Christ. And there were some that did. There was this man who wanted to see the Messiah in his lifetime. He wants Uh, to see with his own eyes. Exactly. Yeah. So there were people who were holding out hope for Christ. They weren't just like, why, God, are you not here? When are you going to get here? Like, they're not impatiently waiting. There are people who are eagerly waiting and almost excitedly waiting. And so Advent for us should should also be like that. So we do rehearse the longing and waiting of the past, but we also wait in a sure, hopeful, again, almost triumphal way because the way God is coming in the future, and maybe we'll get to this as we talk about verse 4, the way God is coming in the future is as king and judge. That's the way that he was expected to come the first time. Some people didn't quite understand that. Yeah, and we have even greater surety because he was just here 2,000 years ago, yes, right? right. That, that's actually not that long in no. the grand scheme of things. That's right. He was here. We have records of it, and he said he's coming back. And, and obviously, the those waiting in, throughout the Old Testament and in the minor prophets and um, in exile— they had faith in God's yeah, yeah, word absolutely. that he would fulfill it. We have faith in God's word and we have yes. we have more. We we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Yes. We have so much to be thankful for. Yes. In fact, it's it, in fact it's wonderful that Christ left because now we have the Holy Spirit, right? And he Christ himself says this about his spirit that this is a wonderful thing that that you get to have. So we get to have the Holy Spirit and this you're right. This gives us even more assurance and excitement about the second coming. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. Colin, the last verse of this song is, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Yeah. A fantastic stanza. And again, another stanza that I did not understand until I actually sat down to look at it for purposes of this podcast. So Christ rules the world with truth and grace, and then it's easy to separate it because of the way we sing the song, and makes the nations prove, and then we have this big pause, 
and then you just it's almost like we start a new thought the glories of his righteousness and you're, got it's so almost many glories. it yeah. almost seems like you're singing and this is especially a problem now because in the modern evangelical church and we've covered this with other songs you have a lot of songs that have sentence fragments so it's it's easy to read this stanza as a collection of sentence fragments we saw this with silent night too but we can trust that these hymn writers were not writing fragments they were writing complete no. thoughts so here's the complete thought Christ rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So truth and grace are analogous to the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. So, and then the pivot point is that Christ makes the nations prove. So Christ has returned, he's come back in triumph. He rules the world. So the curse is gone. He rules the world with truth and grace. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so we have the nations now are proven. And what that means is tested. Like this is the this is the moment where the refiner's fire happens, where, where God puts the nations into the refiner's fire. And the glories of his righteousness are proven because God's righteousness is absolute, his standard is high, his holiness is unreachable. And so there are some nations that will be tested against the righteousness of God and they will be found wanting and they will perish. And then there are other nations that will be tested and will be found to be in Christ and they will experience the wonders of his love. It's speaking about Christ returning as judge and savior in truth and in grace at the same time and testing. All, and by the nations, I think this just means, right, all the peoples. I think proof here means experience, which is a meaning that's lost in modern English, but existed into the 18th century. And I have some examples of this uh, from the Oxford English Dictionary, authoritative source on the meanings of words, and the histories of the meanings of words. So this is from 1330. My strength is doubled by God above, and that ye shall yet today prove. So you shall now, today you shall you shall experience my doubled strength. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from 1662. I may prove the like sad destiny Chlorina did, should I become your wife. So... Um, if I become your wife, I will also prove this destiny. So I will also experience this destiny. And then in 1738, John Wesley wrote, Thrice happy, all who trust in him, all good, almighty to redeem, they only shall his mercy prove, loved with an everlasting love. So they will experience his mercy. And this is still what's meant with Probieren in German, which means to um, to try, to taste, or to experience. So I think the nations proving the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love are the nations experiencing the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. I think I'm actually saying something similar to that, and maybe I'm maybe I'm throwing you off and perhaps no. our listeners when I say test, because I suppose when I mean test, I mean, I actually mean demonstrate. Like, I don't mean a test where you don't know the outcome. Mm -hmm. What I mean is, you know, like the Pythagorean theorem is apodictically true. It's a priori true. It 
it doesn't need you to actually go and measure a triangle because the math of it is is correct. If you go and measure a triangle, you're not proving the theorem as much as you are demonstrating it or even illustrating it. So in a sense, I think what I'm saying kind of lines up with what you're saying about experience. So the nations will will demonstrate God will demonstrate to the nations the glories of his righteousness, I presume by means of of justice, um, and also the wonders of his love by means of grace. Although I suppose you could also make the argument that he demonstrates the glories of his righteousness because the nations are saved mm-hmm. by his righteousness too. I mean, it could be something like that, I suppose mm-hmm. as well. I don't know if there's a reason why we should accept one over the other. But I guess all that just to say, I think there's quite actually quite a lot of overlap between your idea of experience and my idea of test as demonstrate or illustrate. Mm-hmm. So we've looked at what this song's about. We've talked about some of the things that happened and we've discussed some of the specific wordings in this song. And I'd like to come back around, Colin, to something that we've talked about uh, throughout this song, and that is, is this an Advent song? Is this song best reserved for Advent? I actually think that this song can and probably should be sung at various times in the year. And the fact is, there are fewer and fewer songs being written about this aspect of Christ's work. And, you know, I think of songs that we've done, like Revelation song. I mean, just look at this song compared to that song, you know? I mean, man, this song is so much, I just think so much more fitting with what we see uh, in, at the end of all things, and at the, or at, I mean, you might even say at the beginning of all things, at the the new heaven and the new earth and, and, and God's redemption of everything. It's It's just so... It's so incredible. I do think it's appropriate and good also to sing it at Advent, Christmas time, just because of this looking forward component that we have. And I, like I said, I don't take the view that Advent should be a time of like sadness or it, it should be longing, but with assurance mm-hmm. and hope. Like when, There's when, no need for sackcloth and ashes yes, when we're celebrating. When Christmas comes, we aren't surprised. Right, and that's the joy of being able to celebrate Advent is because we we know that Christmas is coming. Like we don't celebrate it wondering whether Christmas is going to come. It is going to come, mm-hmm. and so it's nice when Christmas comes because it's like, okay, this wasn't unexpected. This we've been building towards this. The waiting has been for a purpose, a sure a sure purpose. So I actually like the idea of singing this during Advent. And I think you could even sing it during Christmas. It gets confusing a little bit when you sing it during during the Christmas season because joy to the world, the Lord has come, makes you immediately think about the incarnation. But by the time you get to the line after that, it's already clear that this is probably not, well, I guess the, a couple of lines after that, it's already clear that this is not about the incarnation, but we just kind of sing it mindlessly anyway. And I suppose... This is not a question that you asked, but it's something that occurs to me right now. One of the things I've learned by thinking about some of these Christmas songs is, again, just how pervasive this has been in the churches that I have been a part of my whole life of just singing songs 
and not thinking about what they say. Even Christmas songs. Especially when you get these archaic forms and these old, old sentences and strange words, you just accept them without, without critically examining them at all. And I think like, and, and this is me. Like, I think if you asked my wife or asked my friends, they would say that I'm an analytical person, that I think about things probably to the point of great annoyance to some of them. And yet in my 38 years on this earth, I have been singing these songs without thinking about them at all. I've just kind of assumed that because they have come at the Christmas time, this is perfectly normal to sing these songs. Like I just haven't even second guessed a lot of these words and constructions. And in fact, what I'm really happy about is in doing so, I found a lot of richness here. I initially expected that I would find some real problems with Joy to the World because Mm -hmm. of some of the constructions in the song. Mm -hmm. And I've been pleasantly surprised that as I've dug into it, I'm quite happy, quite a bit happier with the song than mm-hmm. I was before I started researching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're like me and you've sung this song exclusively at Christmas and thought exclusively of the incarnation when singing it, you may be pleasantly surprised when you think critically about the rest of the song and the references to the second coming of Christ and the restoration of the natural world as well as uh, our human bodies and i think it would be interesting to see the songs sung at other times of the year i've i've learned that there were other tunes for the song mm. before it kind of became solidified as the christmas song of the english speaking world um i think lift up your heads was a common tune that was used for this text so if you're feeling adventurous, try it around Easter time or something yeah, like that. Yeah, see what happens. You know, one more thing that I'll say about the history of this song, which I found interesting. Isaac Watts was a bit of an edgy guy for doing this because, and this is easy to forget, but just 300 years ago, virtually all the churches, Protestant churches in the English-speaking world were singing exclusive psalms. And Isaac Watts was trying to figure out how to infuse some uh, pathos into these the psalm singing. And so he was kind of adapting the psalms to have some elements of New Testament imagery in them. And this was not widely appreciated by some. And it's just funny to me that now Joy to the World is kind of a crusty old hymn in a lot of ways. And yet, you know, there are very few churches that sing only the Psalms. There are very few churches that even sing any Psalms, right? So just amazing. This song this song is an interesting time capsule. So as a as a historian, I find the song interesting because it's a time capsule from when a shift was beginning to happen. And it's fascinating to me that this song has been preserved through these last 300 years and has arrived now in a time which in many respects songs like this helped birth, right? A period, a, a time in which now the church, like there were probably people who were criticizing Isaac Watts and they were like, no, if you start doing this, Soon we won't even be singing the Psalms. And I bet Isaac Watts was like, no, you, come on. 
<laughs> Come on, this is not going to happen. You know, these are just stylized versions right. of the songs. The, the, this is not a huge stretch. You if know? you do this, we'll be singing the Revelation right. song in three hundred right. years. <laughs> right. And I wonder if someone, you know, if you could send Revelation song back to that guy who was mad at Isaac Watts. And he'd have that. And he'd be like, nope, <laughs> look at what happened. <laughs> look at what you did. You know, almost like the you know the ghost of, of Christmas future or whatever, yes. you know, coming back. And Isaac Watts is going to be turning in his grave like, no, <laughs> please, spirit, say it isn't so. <laughs> so this song is a, is a fascinating relic it is. for you. Yeah. Historical relic. Mm-hmm. Well, Colin, what would you give this song? Uh, I'm oh, gonna... excuse me before I do that. Yes. Colin, would you recommend churches sing this song around this time of year? Yes, and all the time. What about you, Tyler? I would recommend they sing this song around this time of year. Yes, absolutely. Colin, what would your score out of five be if you were I, to give this a score? I w- yes, I will give this song five out of five 90s Christmas albums. Mm. The famous version sung by one of my wife's heroes when she was a teenager mariah carey really yes she did very famous version of the she had this whole christmas is it any good no she had this christmas album it had on it like all i want for christmas is you i just want you for my own i have to hear these songs every christmas along (laughs) with amy grant's stupid christmas album and i am going to lose it if i have to hear these songs (laughs) Too much more. <laughs> well, please help. Tell her to play the worship review on her Amazon Alexa to listen to that instead. Yeah, we have to figure out how to get on Alexa. We like, are. Al- I checked today. Are we really? I, I said, Alexa, play the worship review on Apple Podcasts. And she said, playing the worship review on Apple Podcasts. So, and we came up. We came up. It played. Yeah, fantastic. I heard, I heard the voice. All right. Um, Tyler, what would you rate the song? I would give this song. So I, I'm trying to think about this. I didn't come in with a number in mind. Yeah. Um, I just came in with some ideas about the song. And if if I were just to say, what is it about? Who is it about? Is it coherent, consistent, and mm-hmm. clear? I would have to give the song full marks. I can't think of. I can't think of ways in which it's. It has any problems except for except for lines that can be interpreted in different ways, like mm-hmm. let every heart prepare him room. Yeah. But which I can't is, dock is, the song for that because we have no evidence that that was intended. And it's, that's also, again, it's part of the, it's part of the original construction, right? It doesn't make sense. Not because the song doesn't make sense. It, it's because language has changed. Mm-hmm. So I think if I'm going to be consistent and fair, and I don't know why I'm resisting this, but <laughs> maybe, maybe I, I think I just have a track record of giving songs lower numbers, but I think I would give this song a five out of five joys. Okay. And here's why. When I was in high school, I was in choir and we sang a Christmas concert every year Mm -hmm. and we had the most obnoxious version of this song. It opened with the four different parts singing joy and holding it at different times. So it was like, joy, 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 to the world. And wonders and wonders are in 
Well, Colin, thank you for your insights on Joy to the World. Thank you for discussing it with me. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to this episode of The Worship Review. See you next time. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.